Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now, the concept of tuning is something we're all familiar with. Everybody understands the concept of tuning uh, musical instruments. In particular, back in the old days, we used to do things such as tune up cars, but apparently with the demise of the carburetor and, and the rise of fuel injection, tuning cars no longer occurs in that, in that concept, but we understand it. We, we know that musical instruments must be tuned to sound right. Back in the day, cars were tuned as, as we know, to make them run more efficiently. And thinking about like a, a piano, for example, uh, it's fairly obvious that the piano strings much, must be tightened in a precise manner to give the right pitch and to harmonize with other instruments. Put differently, even a untutored ear can hear an instrument that is out of tune. It turns out that when we zoom out a little bit, scientists who have studied the universe have discovered a tuning on a completely different level. In fact, the closer scientists have looked, the deeper the fine tuning of the world we live in, of the universe itself becomes. And what is meant here is that the universe appears to be finely tuned to allow for the possibility of life which is truly a remarkable finding. Now this topic of fine tuning covers both science and religion. To religion, the fine tuning of the universe is evidence of, a, of an intelligent creator behind the scenes. The scientist, however, observes and notes the same fine tuning features, but is not compelled to associate them with an intelligent being, being and in particular, for those um, who are wondering, in particular, the God of the Bible is not raised as the cause of fine-tuning, at least in the scientific viewpoint. And this is where the scientific explanations start hedging towards things like the multiverse or the natural explanation. Today, the concept of fine-tuning is probably the number one issue. It's a big topic. And those who are looking for scientific books to read on the topic, there's quite a few classics out there, including The Accidental Universe and The Goldilocks Universe, two different books by Paul Davies. There's The Gigantic Anthropic Cosmological Principle by John Barrow and Frank Tipler. And there's Just Six Numbers by Martin Rees. Now, I'd like to add another book to that list, a newer book. And this book is entitled A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos, co-authored by today's guest, Luke Barnes, who I'm happy to say is joining us for Australia. 
from Australia, which is probably the farthest destination I've ever had a guest. Now, Luke is the, is the co-author of the book. He's currently a professor of physics. It's at the University of Sydney, right, Luke? At Western Sydney University. At, at West, West, West Sydney University. So, Luke, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we had we had a do quite a job of synchronizing our time zones, but I'm really happy that you're here and uh, to have a little discussion about fine tuning. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, so welcome. So, first of all, let's let's just take let's just uh, start from the a big picture here. What what interests you about this subject? Now, you you are widely published on the concept of fine tuning, in addition to the book, A Fortunate Universe. What 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 is it about this topic that interests you? Well, there's a few things. One of the, one of the things that really got my interest up about it was actually after I'd started researching it and, and started giving talks about it, I gave a talk uh, on basically the science of the fine tuning of the universe for life at the place I was working to at the time, which was Sydney University. I'm now at Western Sydney University. Um, and so there's a room full of astronomers and we have our weekly you know, seminars. You get an expert in or you have someone local just give, you know, a, a talk for usually, you know, 50 minutes and then there's five minutes at the end for questions. So I gave a talk and I had deliberately left like a bit more time at the end because I knew there'd be questions. But what I wasn't expecting was I talked for 45 minutes and then everyone in the room sat around for an hour and a half asking questions and debating and talking amongst themselves about what on earth this thing means. I've never yeah. seen anything like it before or since, yeah. but it just grabs people's, it grabs everyone's attention. You can do the same with a popular level audience. There's a widespread feeling that we have to do something about this. Something weird is going on yeah. with this fact that small changes to the properties, the basic fundamental properties of the universe would result in a universe that can't sustain or support life. Uh, yeah. And yet here we are. Yeah, well, it's it's really an amazing um, topic, and I, I personally um, have always been interested in it because um, it is it's one of the it's 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 one of those topics that it whether you fall on the scientific side of things, the religious side, or somewhere in between, it's a it's a it's a topic facts that have to be dealt with, and you know I I said in the opening. Um, you know, there's there's that there's that saying from um, quantum theory, the, Co the Copenhagen interpretation. It says, you know, uh, shut up and calculate. You know, don't 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 start interpreting what or try to interpret what the data is showing you, which doesn't make a lot of sense to some people. And I feel like there's some of that with the fine tuning. It's like, okay, let's just list all the oddities, and but let's leave the interpretation of somebody else. Now you don't do that in this book, which I think makes it, you know, entertaining and, and, and sort of a, a real, a real thoughtful read. Um, but what, what are you seeing in the scientific community with regard to interpreting what, what uh, we should take away from all this fine tuning evidence? So as you said in your introduction, there's a couple of views. One of them is the multiverse. Right. How, how did we land on just the right set of numbers and constants for our universe to allow for life? Well, maybe out there beyond what we can see, uh, the, there's there's lots of other universes out there, so to speak, with lots of different other values. And so basically it's a lottery, sure, but the universe bought lots of different tickets. And so the right ticket had to turn up somewhere. 
There's that view out there. There's the view out there that actually we can't, you know, it seems like these small changes mean something, but actually once we really understand physics, we'll understand that you couldn't have changed that number at all. Um, it'll, it'll turn out to be something like pi or something like that where we'll know the deeper reason why it has to be what it is. I actually find that one brought up more by non-physicists than physicists. There's very few physicists who take that hard line, but they're out there. And thirdly, um, just the view that we don't, in changing these numbers, we don't know how likely any of the different dial uh, settings are. And so, yeah, there's something slightly odd going on here, but we can't say anything improbable or unlikely has happened or that any particular idea about the universe has been rendered unlikely just because we don't we don't have any of the probabilities we would need to make that conclusion. So that that view goes around as well. Yeah, so let, let's get a little... A little specific here um, for a moment before we talk about the multiverse more, and that is there's all sorts of, you know, top ten fine tuning features of the universe. And I mentioned uh, Martin Rees. There's another one. There's another book I have here called I think it's called um, the nine. You know, the nine magic numbers or something. I mean, there's always okay. These are the ones that really mean something. Um, but let which which fine tuning feature of the universe do you feel or which or which ones do you feel um are the most important or the most note noteworthy I, I think there's sort of two that really jump out at me one of them is something called the cosmological constant so the, the short story is if, if there was a form of energy, so for, energy takes various forms around us, heat, light, motion. But if there was a form of energy that was associated with space itself, just even in empty space, there was a form of energy that still existed there um, and was still there. You know, if the universe expands, there's more space, so there's more energy now because it's just whenever you make space, you make this form of energy called vacuum energy because it's there even if there's no particles there, there's a vacuum. That form of energy would have a, a major say on how the universe expands. Does it get faster? Does it slow down? Does it turn around and crunch? Does it do all these things? That number, that, that propensity is represented by a number called the cosmological constant. And we worked out in 1998, and they won the Nobel Prize for this, various people, including Brian Schmidt, who wrote the foreword to our book, um, that... That number is in our universe is not zero. It's it's you know there's some number there. So that actually the way our universe expands, it's actually accelerating. A, a galaxy over there is not only getting further away from us each day; it's moving faster today than it was yesterday. And this number, once you start to think about all the ways that you could in modern physics, in field theories, in all we know about the universe, the way you could put energy into empty space the way things could add a little bit or even subtract a little bit from this vacuum energy the fact that we get a value of this vacuum energy which allows for structure to form galaxies to form stars to form planets to form is actually really rather remarkable of the set of possibilities for what that number could have been, how much energy is there in empty space, the cosmological constant, the range which allows life or structure or anything at all interesting to form is remarkably small. The rest of these universes, if the number's too large, they expand so fast that no particle ever interacts with another particle. 
and if it's too negative, then the universe collapses in a fraction of a second. And so that's a really remarkable case where um, it seems like there's a lot of fine-tuning going on because there's a lot of different ways that you could put some energy into empty space, all the sort of quantum fields, as they're called. And it's such a clear case of... Um, rendering a universe uninhabitable it's not it, we're not we're not dealing with subtleties of carbon chemistry or anything like that it's literally nothing will ever touch anything else if you get that number wrong so that's number one number two is just the basic stuff that we're all made out of if you sort of break us down to the lego blocks of you know as far as we know um there's there's electrons and there's protons and neutrons but those are actually made of smaller things called quarks um, these are tiny little particles. And one of the properties we know that they have is they have a mass. How heavy is it? So if you put a little electron on a little set of scales, obviously that won't really happen. But we, we know that there's a number there that's really, really small in any, you know, right. pound or kilogram sized unit. What if those numbers have been different? Well, actually, there's some rather remarkable um, constraints that you've got to put there. You've got to land in just the right section of the possibilities if you want a universe that does anything interesting, like has a periodic table. In other words, you can take the smallest bits and put the quarks together and make protons and neutrons. Put protons and neutrons together, not just to make one kind of thing or a blob of stuff, but uh, structures, all of the, you know, hydrogen, helium, uh, now I've got a lithium, beryllium, boron, you know, the whole periodic table of options that then chemistry and then all of that works out. It turns out if you mess with these fundamental parameters just a little bit, these masses, you end up with a universe where periodic table just doesn't work. You, you can only make one type of element and it won't stick to itself or it'll only make one type of molecule. You know, just the whole of chemistry collapses into one element and one molecule. Yeah, those those are um, those are big ones. And, and the cosmological constant, you know, the reading that I've done... Um, I think there's quite a few noteworthy physicists who call that, you know, you know, the most remarkable fact of the universe or something, the hardest to explain fact. I think even Steven Weinberg um, is famous for that, for, for saying that, you know, something that he can't figure out. And just, just to be clear, um, the, under the laws of physics, the vacuum is supposed to have energy because of the of quantum theory. And when scientists add up all of that vacuum energy, there's a mismatch between what that number is and what is actually measured. Is that is that correct? Not not quite. So imagine almost. Okay. Imagine you've got a bank account and it, it's allowed to you're allowed to put money into it or take money out of it. So it's got an overdraw feature, positive or negative. And there's 20 different people who can take money in or out of that bank account. And over the course of a month, they're all, you know, billionaires. So someone puts in you know, something of order of a billion dollars and someone's taking out of order of a billion dollars, this, that, and the other, right? So it's wherever it started at the, at the in the last month over the course of a month 20 different people have either have, have put in billions or taken out billions without ever talking to each other and then you look at your account statement at the end of the month and it says one cent yeah 
that's that's where we are, right? There's yeah. all these different things that could add or take away from or make negative or positive the energy of the fat field. And it's not impossible that it could land at one cent, right. but it just, you know, if it wasn't perfectly balanced, then we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be here, you know, five cents and you blow the universe up minus five cents and you collapse the universe and all the other values are just completely finished. And I've said a billion dollars. So one cent to a billion dollars is, you know, a billion is 10 to the nine and we're down to the cents. So that's 10 to the 11. For the cosmological constant, the number is something like 10 to the power of 120 or at least 10 to the power of 100. So it's, right. you know, this bank account, there's 20 different people t putting in and out trillions and of trillions of trillions of trillions. And then after, at the end of the day, here we are in a universe where that account has one cent in it. it it's just, that's the sort of, weirdness we see around us yeah and and of course and as you as you as you say um that number has to be in a certain range a very narrow range yeah for structures for for galaxies to form and for everything sort of to hold together so so that we have yeah. so, that, so that we have something that isn't 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 um you know cast to the four winds or something that isn't condensed and and you know the big the big crunch so to speak, um, and so so that's that is um, you know and frankly one one question that comes up and there, that's just that's just one of the many um, but one question comes up it, and you sort of go there in your book although I'm really not sure um, you know how far down that road but. You know, to what at what point do these coincidences or fine tuning features, whatever you want to call them, uh, build up where where you sort of take a step back? I think Fred Hoyle said this, where it's like a put up job. You know, something is going on behind the scenes, and you know, I think, and uh, you know, you had a good natured um, debate with your co author in this book about. Uh, you know what does it all mean? Which is which is the fun part of the conversation. Um, and so, in terms of you know your own views as a scientist and somebody that's you know professor of physics, how do you approach this put up job issue? This you know something must be going on. I mean, how do you view this yourself? And then we could talk about the scientific community. Well, me so. There's a couple of things. I, for the multiverse explanation, the thing that I want it to do is to produce predictions so that I can go and test them. Now, I've written papers to try and sort of coax some predictions out of this idea. It's remarkably hard to do. <laughs> um, but that's, that's what I want because that's a way the universe could be. And so what I want to know from that idea is, you know, don't just tell me that it'll solve everything and try to leave it at that. Give me some predictions that I can go and test or at least a model I could try and derive some predictions from. Um, it's it's not particularly easy to do. I should say I, I come to this as a theist. And so there's there's that resource there always to, um, I, I think we'll find sort of fine tuning at the bottom of the universe, no matter what, but exactly where it is, is what I want to know. Is it these parameters or deeper ones? Just because I think there's more ways for a universe to be boring and lifeless than there are for it to be interesting and morally meaningful. And so I think there's always going to be um, that sort of fine tuning at the bottom. 
that that you'll you'll get a better explanation of the fundamental features of the universe via a reason than via uh, well, no reason at all, or some deeper mathematical principle. Yeah, and I, and I think that the um, you know the multiverse is definitely an option, and I haven't I haven't done a poll, but hmm. there's quite a few sort of supporters of the of the multiverse multiverse principle, and you know one of the themes of this show and my own writing. Um, is that there is this visceral reaction that many scientists have against being associated with anything that's even close to religion. And, mm. and you know, it's, it's sort of my, my – I go back to um, like Darwin where Darwin was fighting the church and that was like the, the enemy, the opponent in this debate. And, and I think that, you know, the way you approached it, is a I think more open-minded and I think that um you know there's not a lot of people that I speak to on this show that are real biblical uh, literalists they're 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 not the, the you know the the strict constructionists there are folks that are sort of looking open-minded trying to look at things in a different way one of the things about the multiverse that I would ask, first of all, I don't think it's a theory. I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the real skeptical camp, but, but if the multiverse is a thing, then wouldn't, wouldn't one of those universes be one in which Jesus Christ rose from the dead and Moses part of the Red Sea and all these miracles occurred? I mean, different miracles. I mean, I, I think when you go to the multiverse, how do you rule out a spiritual or whatever however you want to put the word, you know, a, a, a theistic element to yeah. it. And I, I, I don't think you can be principled and say, okay, multiverses are only those in which none of them have any spiritual element in, in them at all. It just, it just seems to me to be, you know, just too much um, to, to follow. So have you ever gone down that road about, you know, restricting the multiverse explanation? Yeah, so what this this is famously what you need is something called a measure. This is called the measure problem. What that means in the context of physics is you need some way of saying that okay, possibilities are cheap. You know, there is you know, I make enough universes, and there's one universe out there where some guy stands in front of the ocean uh, or the sea, parts his hands, and at just the right time, whatever else happens, the sea actually parts. Right. right? What you need is some way of putting a set of probabilities on things. So sure, if that's possible, great. But if if it's very unlikely, then you feel like you've still explained something. Uh, and so the fact that more things are probable in the multiverse wouldn't immediately destroy its ability to predict things as long as you've got probabilities. So as long as you can say, I wouldn't expect to be in a universe in which, you know, Moses part of the Red Sea purely just by accident, you know, just, right. just a coincidence. Um, and so, but the problem here is, and, and this is going to sound simplistic, but I think it's really getting to the heart of it. it a lot of these theories want to appeal to infinities. There's an infinite number of other universes out there. And it's been pointed out, there's a very good and very rigorous paper on this by a guy's nickname, I think he's Olum, O-L-U-M. We can go and look that up if you want. Just, just pointing out that, okay, 
um, one of the things that we might expect to be true in that universe is whatever is that I'm as much of an observer as you are. So whatever probabilities I assign to things, you should also assign to things. But if you have an infinite number of observers, um, it's very hard to find a way of assigning probabilities that that hands things out equally to an infinite number of people. So you've got to, this is the measure problem. How do you weigh up different perspective, different observers? And there's a very good argument to be made that it's just simply not possible. But you can't say, if, if, if for every 100 um, times that someone like Moses goes to the Red Sea, does this and nothing happens, one out of those times he goes like this and the Red Sea parts, then you can say, okay, you know, 100 to 1, that's not going to happen. But if it's an infinite number of Moses, uh, Moseses and an infinite number of you know failed Moseses, then how do you say that there's more likely one over the other? Well, you you can do that in probability theory. It's just that you need you need a measure which applies in all these places. But it, you can't make a measure that honors this any observer is as good as any other observer principle that you see you, you seem to need to have there. So there's a real mystery here about how you do physics at all in an infinite universe, infinite universe, let alone an infinite multiverse. So these are these are why I say of of um I've got a paper out called A Reasonable Little Question about the fine-tuning argument. Just my critique of the multiverse is just that it's a toy model at the moment. It it's there's the the idea of how you might make these things happen, but in detail, there's an awful lot of unsolved problems that seem very, very formidable for, for getting any sort of predictions out of these ideas. Yeah, I, I just don't find the multiverse satisfying. And I, I think that's sort of, I mean, it is, um, it's got so many speculative elements to it. Um, it's, it's just, well, I could be, I could be more direct. And I, you know, I, I think it really is sort of an intellectual, um, sort of gamesmanship maybe is one word but but or maybe it's a place you know maybe it's a placeholder until someone comes up with something better or different but if you look at it from the perspective of do you go with something that is in the theist realm or something where you maybe open the door a little bit for some intelligence somewhere or do you just put all your cards all your chips on the multiverse I mean, you know, I'm a big fan that, you know, evidence test results, that's that's all that's the power of science. You you have mm -hmm. to be able to have a testable theory. Um, but the, the 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 one of the wonders of the fine tuning topic is that it brings up these topics and yeah. and it it really, you know, it opens the door to to you could have an intelligent discussion on this and you know i'm not gonna i i i clear i mean i think there's an intelligence but i don't i'm not an intelligent design person and i'm not i'm not a biblical uh, strict instructionist i mean i i'm, I'm i like to be open-minded but i think you know when the evidence points to to um to this fine-tuning i mean we haven't even talked about for example, the low entropy of of, of the uh, mm. of the Big Bang, and and I I think that that is that's an amazing um, story, and I I don't know how much you've read Brian Greene, but you know he's got one book, um, 
I, I don't. It's not the elegant universe. It's so. It's so. It's. It came after that. It's on my shelf. The fabric me. of the cosmos. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. It could be where he says that. He talks. He he basically says that. Um, the own that the universe must have been in a low entropy state at the Big Bang because that's because according to the second law of, thir of you know thermodynamics, you're going to have more disorder going forward in time. So therefore you have to start with a low entropy state, which mm -hmm. of course begs the question, what are, what are we talking about here? I mean, how can you have a low entropy state um, talking about finely tuned, but then, then a recent book, and I, I think it's most recent book, um, I think till the end of time, um, he seems to have changed and he goes and he starts talking about gravity being the force that is sort of organizing everything. But regardless, I mean, I, I was first sort of alerted to this low entropy issue when I read the Brian Green book. And um, I thought he did a good job just facing it head on. But talking about something that is bizarre, um, and I don't know what you make of it. Uh, I know you talk about it in your book. Um, you know, you sort of have to say, okay, so how how do you wind up with something low entropy or higher order early when you know what's causing that i mean so 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 what's your take on the whole low entropy issue yeah so uh very quickly the the, the problem is we see around us that um to, to, to translate the word entropy, what it means is that some some forms of energy are useful in that it's easy to convert them into another form of energy, and some forms of energy are more useless. It's hard to, to convert them into another form of energy. If I had a match here, there's chemical energy in the head of the match. It's very easy to convert that into fire. I can just, I just got, you've just got to strike it on the side of the box, and there it is, fire. Um but once it's burnt down to, you know, the ashes, it, it would be extremely difficult to get all the energy back and get it back into constituting that match head again. That's the, basically the second law of thermodynamics at work. Energy becomes more useless very roughly. And so the question then is, all right, if that's the way our universe works, then there must have been a whole lot of very useful energy right at the start. And that's exactly what we see. There's the form of the energy in the early universe is is in a form where it's ready to make stuff. Basically, it's the fact that the universe is almost perfectly smooth, almost perfectly smooth, so that gravity can collapse things to make stars, planets, galaxies, star, you know, suns fire up and stars fire up and make you know chemical elements and provide energy. All that happens because the universe starts off ready to go. The flip side of that is what what it would look like for a universe to be born in sort of ashes well if gravity is the main thing that matters there it would be black holes just you make a universe full of black holes and nothing else happens the only thing that can happen in that universe is one black hole eats another that's that's it um and so how did the universe get to have lots of useful energy really early and you say well maybe that's the way it was born the problem is the way we understand the second law on a fundamental level is it's, it's not a basic law of nature all it really is is that the, the stuff around us is undergoing constantly transformations from the less likely for less likely arrangements to more likely arrangements. There's just more ways to have the energy that was in that match head spread out over ash and light and heat. And there's more ways to do that and spread it all out than there is to have it contained in that match head. 
So it looks like as well as being really useful, the early universe is really unlikely. There's something very special in a, in some sense about that arrangement. The thing that it, it's an interesting case of fine tuning because it looks like a case of fine tuning. Like the universe had to be in a very specific state in order for anything useful to happen afterwards. And 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 if anything, this entropy case is is a great example of of nothing interesting will happen if you don't get this right, right? All you'll have is black holes, great big black holes, and they'll occasionally collide, or probably even not. They just spread out in empty space. If you want anything interesting, you better have a second law of thermodynamics. Um, the difference is there's something very simple to specify about that early state of the universe if you want it to be useful. So if it, you could at least imagine some sort of law that sorted it out, Maybe you could imagine it. At least simple to specify. The problem with the cosmological constant is, especially relative to the way physics is at higher energy states. Um, that's, a, that's a hard thing to explain. But anyway, um, in order, it's not just that you have to hit a small target. It's that, that that target's kind of in the middle of nowhere in in terms of the 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 way physics is laid out in the early universe. The fine-tuning you would have to do to get the cosmological right today, cosmological right today, involves a whole lot of coincidences that have no other reasonable explanation in the early universe. Whereas the entropy, it's just got to be low. Now, the problem is low entropy seem like the least likely ones, but at least it's easy to specify what that constraint is supposed to be. So it's an interesting one. I, When I discuss this, I'm, I'm less likely to present it as a case of fine-tuning and more a case of, okay, you've been told for at least the last hundred and something years that the way our universe is, is that it's um, that order came from chaos, that it started off a complete mess. And then thankfully the laws of science were here to sort everything out. Uh, and that the universe just looks like an accident. It's just sort of here and there's some, some random bang. And then here we are. And that's not, absolutely not the story of science it's order from from the first millisecond it's it's just the universe starts in a highly ordered state you know that's that's the initial condition we've got to put in to understand the universe maybe there's more to be said about that but it's certainly not the case that the more science is discovered the more accidental and you know random it looks no the the further back in time we go the more orderly it, it is and has to be well i mean i i i personally think that that's a contradiction in in the way the um the Big Bang is presented. And maybe it's just the the nomenclature. Big Bang conjures up an explosion. And even though maybe it's not really an explosion, but explosions are chaotic events. And so so you're sort of like, it's like a brain twister. You've got to like, okay, well, it was really an ordered explosion, which sounds worse in many ways. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, it's one of those... It's one of those conundrums, and I, I think that it's, to me, it's related a little bit to the inflationary um, Big Bang. I mean, yeah, the inflationary Big Bang, which is a, an amazing um, theory in, in and of itself. And I'll touch on, we'll touch on that briefly here, because I think it's, it's, it's another really weird feature of today's scientific mainstream, where, um, you know, we have the, the, flat, the flat universe, the balance between gravity and the repulsive force of the big bang and why and, you know why is the universe flat when it should have when it you know maybe it should have contracted and maybe it um should have flown away to the to the to the seven winds um and all that and then 
the uh, the inflationary big bang comes along, and I um, which is the standard way to explain the smoothness flatness horizon problems, but um, you know I had uh, Paul Steinhardt on the show a number of years ago, and I got him on the show because he had written an article in Scientific American about how the inflationary Big Bang was actually more finely tuned than the original Big Bang. And, um, and I, you know, and, and you touch upon that in your book, um, which is another, you know, for our listeners, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing because it sounds really cool. This, you know, the, the, the universe inflates by, you know, trillions and trillions of times. And, and, and then, and then the inflation stops, which I, and then it just goes along its normal path or whatever but it but then that that inflationary event has to be finely tuned so what are your thoughts about the inflationary big bang theory and i i may have butchered some of it but what can i say um no that's that's about right there's yeah in, in any physical theory you've got to have initial conditions Right. So, so the laws of nature as we know them don't tell us how the universe is. They tell us how the universe changes. So if you want to know how the universe is today, you need to know how it was at some point in the past. So, for example, if I tell you where all the planets were last night and I'd give you the laws of gravity, um, you know, given a bit of work. Also, not just where the planets are, how they're moving as well it also matters. Um, how fast they're moving in what direction. You can then make your prediction. So, at some point, you just have to lay down initial conditions. The problem was with the Big Bang Theory, and I should say, given what you said earlier, that the name Big Bang was made up by one of the opponents of the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was originally called like the Primeval Atom Theory, but that didn't ca catch on. And then, <laughs> and then Fred Hoyle called it the Big Bang Theory. Right. It like a radio interview to make fun of it, and it stuck. Yeah. And there was a massive competition by Tim Ferriss in the 80s and 80s, I think, to try and find a better name, and they, they still couldn't find one. Yeah. Anyway, um, so don't take the explosion a bit too literally. Right. But when we la when we thought about the initial conditions there, there was something that was just a bit odd about them, and you've got to lay them down anyway. But it seemed like you may needed to provide some really specific features of those initial conditions, but there's no reason why it would be this way rather than that way. So this idea of inflation came along as a way of providing more what looked like more general initial, more general, more generic initial conditions. Uh, but arguably in terms of this, and there's, there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for that theory. It's interesting that we could, that some of the features of the big bang theory, you could sort of make look more natural and more normal via this process. You just blow the universe up really quickly, really early. And suddenly, Hey, presto, it looks a bit more like our universe. The, the, in terms of the entropy problem, though, because the whole point is that the further you go back in time, the more special you need your initial conditions to be, inflation is not an exception to that. There's, um, there's some great articles, there are great sort of scientific papers on this, arguing exactly this point, that, um, you know, that if if the second law still holds, then you're still explaining every explanation of a later state in terms of an earlier state has to be of the form of the earlier state is something special, something more fine-tuned, so to speak. Um, maybe, maybe I shouldn't use that terminology there because that's being the question. More um, low entropy, more 
sort of uh, special in the in the context of the way that possibilities could have been, and inflation's no no exception to that. So, um, yeah, that that inflation is 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 sort of it seems like part of the puzzle, part of the the, the puzzle's fallen into place, but it's just raised more questions, at least for me. Yeah, and and I on that on that note, it's it's similar. It you know it's similar to the multiverse. So. Um, because it does raise a lot of questions, but it's a fast, it's a fascinating collection of theories. And we, you know, we're not going to have time to go through all of them because there's quite a number of them. We haven't talked about dark matter, for example, but um, one of the things I want to, I want to ask you before we um, call it a day is, you know, having studied this problem for decades now, I take it, Luke, um, where do you think science is going to be in 25 years or so with, with this? <laughs> you think there's going to be, I mean, what's your guess on where, where things are heading? Is there a very good a question. That's a very good question. Um, we're, we're starting to come up against a couple of limits. I mean, it's always, it's been perfectly obvious that, that, you know, you can only discover something about the universe if it's there. And if it's in a sort of state where it's discoverable, so we're very much reliant on the universe being nice to us at some at some <laughs> level. Yeah. Um, there could have been a cosmological constant, but it was so small that we we never discover it, or at least not for another billion years of, ex- of observations or something. We're also we're in a little bit of a weird area where we've just spent so particle physics is just. You know, ten years ago, the, the the Large Hadron Collider, which was billions of dollars, you know, it's a twenty-seven kilometer loop under Switzerland and France. Right. And there's talk of what the next one's going to be, but that's going to be an enormous project that takes even longer. And the fact that the Large Hadron Collider did like one of the things we were hoping it would do, but not much else. Like, like what are we going to learn? We, we might build something enormous and run it for years and billions and billions of dollars and just find that the ideas we had about the universe are still doing fine at that right. slightly higher energy level. We've also just put the James Webb Telescope in space, which is, again, enormous decades of work, billions of dollars. And it's doing interesting stuff. I think astronomy is in a much better area for if you make something really big, it will at least take some really nice pictures of the yeah, universe. Yeah, true. Um, but we're just coming up against like the sort of things we need to do in the future to push science forward. Are we're way past the the one one nation or you know one government yeah. can do it on their own. We need massive collaborations, and there's no guarantees of success. And we're sort of pushing up like there's a limit. We're starting to push up against like geological limits for the biggest collider you can you can make. And we're starting to think of okay, could we put a telescope on the backside of the moon? Like, is that an option? <laughs> so, and, and you know, people yeah. are seriously thinking about that. Yeah. It's, it would be exciting and wonderful, but we're just the whole. Um, let's get a couple of governments together and get you know twenty million dollars and that like that era is gone you need right. billions to do anything so where we'll be in 25 years is desperately hoping that the next sort of 10 billion dollars we spend on whatever finds something drastic and and epoch changing to to warrant even looking even further because if at some point we just keep finding out that actually you know we're doing pretty all right as we are 
it's going to take a lot of wind out of the sails for um um uh, you know the the sciences especially physics particle physics and astronomy however it's not going to be the end of those sciences there's still an awful lot you can do with um those the mid the 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 facilities we have as long as we have funding to keep those going it's it's pushing through to the next level of stuff that i really don't know um in terms of theory it's really hard to know because we had the most exciting theory for the last three decades has been string theory and it's really really clear now that it's at least the optimism is gone it might turn really? out be to be a wonderful thing but the the voices which say you know what uh you know, maybe it's right but we're, we're not going to know and and a lot of the promise is sort of petering out there i'm not any sort of particle physicist so i'm just sort of yeah looking on from the outside yeah um yeah it's just hard to know um, well yeah well yeah well string theory is a whole other topic and i i you know there's there's um there's some great books written on that on that topic um not even wrong and, and and the one by um lee Smolin, i can't think of the name but that's the, but the it's trouble with physics i think yeah yeah the trouble with physics so um in, in closing we have to go to the big question and you know you have a debate um with your with your co-author um gerant lewis um you know where does you know on the g word and what what is your you know what does this say? What does fine tuning your mind say for those who want there to be a God? I mean, what, where do you come down on that? And if you want to be agnostic about it, fine. But I have to ask you the question um, because the name of the show is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. So we're going beyond. Um, but, anyways, where do you come down for those who are looking for something in this fine tuning debate? Um, well, so apart from being agnostic, I, I was an I was a theist before I started looking to fine tuning. So it, yeah. it's not that it changed my mind about anything. Part of the reason I was interested in it was because it was something that, um, even very hostile atheist physicists like Stephen, uh, like um Fred Hoyle, that started right. saying very weirdly theistic things. Yeah. About it, there's a wonderful quote from Freeman Dyson, who's another great physicist of the 20th century, uh, in Scientific American in 1970, which is remarkably early for this. When he says, "When we look at the way all the look at the way something like when we look at the way all these different properties of our universe together, you know, quote it, it, it almost seems like the universe must have known we were coming." Yeah, uh, which uh, uh, very very teleological kind of statement there. So, but but my I was a theist already. For right. me, it sits very neatly with what I already believed about the world. Right. And if I try my best to put myself in the shoes of specifically a naturalist, someone who thinks that natural stuff is the only stuff, there's just the universe, space, time, matter, and that's it. Right. Um, that's all that really exists. Uh, if I try to put myself as honestly as I can in their shoes, I think this would keep me up at night. I think it would really bother me because... Um, it seems like here's something which you would not expect on um, naturalism, but you very much would expect on theism. It's, you know, there, there's no deeper reason for the universe on naturalism. So it better not look like there is some sort of deeper reason. Like, you know, you, you, you mentioned before, uh, Fred Hoyle, um, um, super intellect has monkeyed with physics, he says. Right. Uh, 
it better not look like that. And for all the world, it does. Now you can try to add to the stories in way that in ways that take away that appearance, like the multiverse. But it, it's clear what you're doing at that point. You're, you're sort of in this the state that um, theists were, say, a hundred years ago, when when Bertrand Russell was trying to say, "Look, the universe is just an accident. We're accidental collocations of atoms. That's everything that science and physics has told us." And I guess if you're a, a theist back then, you could say, "Oh, well." maybe it looks that way but maybe what we don't know um will overturn that impression at some point maybe in spite of that impression there could still be a god somehow and now that that story's totally flipped it's that the first impression is of design and teleology and purpose and you have to try to think about multiverses and all that sort of stuff to try to overturn that first impression yeah so um again i i can't claim to be completely unbiased but i am you know as i try to think these things through i think that that generic ah, uh, the universe is just an accident. It's just we're just some typical third rock from the sun in some right. average galaxy. So desperately trying to say that we're we're average and normal, and fine tuning just blows all of that at the deepest level of physics. Just blows it all right out of the water. Yeah, and that that is that is my you know that's my conclusion as well because I mean, um, you you got to go where the evidence leads, and if the evidence leads to um whether it's spirit intelligence god whatever whatever word you want to put on it um then that's where the evidence leads and i i'm um you know i think that's practicing science and i and when i asked a question about 25 years from now i'm thinking that maybe there'll be more people thinking like you and opening their mind to this possibility because um, I, I think that you can be logical, rational and come to this conclusion. In fact, I think, to be honest, I think that it's a more logical, rational position to come to than the alternative, because I'm, I think the multiverse is a quote cop out. No, no offense to folks who believe in it. Um, and, and it's sort of like how many, it's like a Ruth Goldberg device, how many different little you know, touch-ups or or um, add-ons are you going to put on to like have your model survive? Um, and at some point, maybe you know, maybe it all comes tumbling down. Uh, this is Philip Camella. This is conversations with uh, conversations beyond science and religion. I, uh, Luke, it's been great talking to talking with you on this very deep and interesting topic. We didn't hmm. cover everything, but I'm I'm. I think we covered enough to give the listener an idea, and I want to um, encourage folks to go out and pick up a, a copy of, of Luke's book that he did with uh, Jarrett Lewis. It's called A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos, and it is what I think makes this book different is that it's an entertaining read. And Luke, you and Jarrett did a good job of keeping your senses of humor as you, as you were writing this book and um, which is hard to do probably, but um, with these topics, but um, the bottom line is that this, this is a topic that will not go away. It's fascinating. And it's a good way to sort of introduce yourself to the mysteries of science. This is Philip Camella conversations beyond science and religion. Thank you for listening. Been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.